When I was eight years old in the third grade, now, if we have anybody here who remembers being an eight-year-old little boy, there are many things to like. Now, if, if I was uh, alive uh, back then, now, maybe I would have loved Fortnite or Minecraft or something like that. But as an eight-year-old, I, I did not have Fortnite. I did not have Minecraft. I had hot dogs. And there was a place, my favorite hot dog place in the world. Now, you'll see for a second why I didn't just have like an Oscar Mayer hot dog. Check this out. Ready? I had Spike's Junkyard Dogs. I mean, the name in itself, right? So the reality is, is in Providence, I lived in Rhode Island, in Providence there was a place called Spike Junkyard Dogs, and you could get, not only could you get a jumbo beef hot dog, foot long, was probably like 9,000 calories, not only could you do that, but they would, they would cut that in half, they would stuff it, uh, you could get this like spicy mayo thing, you could get bacon, you could get both, you could get chili, you could get onions. Um, at the end of the, the day, you literally just had like this sagging, gross, but I thought it was terrific. In fact, Spike's Junkyard Dogs was so great that they had a challenge on the wall. If you could break the record for most hot dogs eaten, you'd get them all free. Now, the, the record was like 31 hot dogs, and I'm telling you, these are literally probably like I, I don't even know. So I could eat about half of one as an eight-year-old. But regardless, my friends and I always like to think, what if we could just break the record? Now, I was excited one day in third grade to go to Spike's Junkyard Dogs, but there was a catch. See, my dad had this author he wanted to go see right across the street at Brown University. And so he said, David, it's going to be simple. You come with me to see Tim O'Brien, and at the end, we'll get Spike's Junkyard Dogs. I said, that sounds like a good deal to me. So I sat through, as an eight-year-old, a two-hour lecture of this man, Tim O'Brien. Now, Tim O'Brien is now known as the foremost author on the American experience of veterans and soldiers in the Vietnam War. And he wrote about his buddies. He came back from a, from a time where, after he fought in Vietnam, he came back and he, he was wondering, what do I do with my life? Where do I go from here? I've just had this experience that was harrowing and challenging and downright awful at times, and I don't know where to go from here. And so he took some time and he thought about it, and he came to this conclusion that people's lives are like books. And so the lives of his buddies who had died in the war were like books that had been written and placed on a shelf. And it was his opportunity to take those young men, those stories that were now written, take them down from the shelf and read them and share them. And that's what he's done with his writing. Now, for me, I thought of that, and I thought, okay, what if each of our lives are books? What if each of us are going through life and we are writing a story? Now, we may be in the middle. If we have a 14-chapter book, we may be in chapter 7. We may find ourselves in chapter 3. We may find ourselves all the way in chapter 14. It doesn't matter. Because my question for you today is, if your life is a book, do you like the book you're writing? Take a moment to think about it. What chapter am I in? I'm in my 30s, so I'd like to say that I'm hopefully in, like, maybe chapter 6. Do I like chapter 6? Do I like how it's going? Do I like where I am? Think for you. Take a moment. Because I will tell you that Jesus' life was a book. Think about it. 
Jesus lived. Jesus is a historical figure, but he also, we read about his life as a book. The four Gospels are literally, we have them available as a book. And the book of Jesus' life, that's a book that we pull down off the shelf, and wow, we can be more like that. And as we're thinking, what kind of book are we writing? I want us to do something that I would never advise as a teacher. Now, I'm, in addition to serving in this church, I'm also a high school teacher, and one of the things I work with my kids is don't plagiarize. Plagiarism simply is taking someone else's ideas, works, intellectual property, and either claiming it as your own or not sourcing it correctly, passing it off not as theirs, but as yours, whether intentionally or indirectly. And it is my big job as a teacher to hammer it, hammer it, hammer it with my students don't plagiarize. Here's how to not plagiarize. But I will tell you, if that's my job as a teacher, as a pastor, my job is different. My job is here to help you plagiarize Jesus. Period. My job is to say, okay, Jesus' life, let's take the book on the shelf, let's open it up, let's look in that chapter, and let's say, wow, what was Jesus doing? How can I live more like him? The Apostle Paul agrees with this idea. He said something similar. He said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We'll paraphrase him and we'll say, plagiarize me, the Apostle Paul, as I plagiarize Jesus. And so I, I want us to think that if we get only one idea from today, think of that book for a second. Maybe you got a book on you, maybe you don't. But think about a book for a second. What book are you writing with your life? The best book plagiarizes Jesus. The best book takes the ideas of Jesus and applies it in what you're writing, in the story as you go. And now you can say for a second, well, David, I don't want to plagiarize Jesus. I want to give him the credit. Well, yes, that's true. But think about it for a second. As I'm going through every single interaction in my life, if I am trying to act like Jesus, it is obnoxious if every single time I work with teenagers. So if I'm sitting there with a teenager and just trying to listen and slow down, if I'm just obnoxiously being like, by the way, the reason I'm doing this right now is because I'm trying to be like Jesus, that's not helpful. Let's plagiarize him. Let's just, no need to say that, like, in every situation that I'm being like Jesus right now, just be like Jesus. Let our actions do the talking. And that's what I challenge to do. So, and as I mentioned, I give tips to my students on how to avoid plagiarism. So today's message is going to be simple. I'm going to give you three tips. We'll keep it simple. They come right out of a passage Isaiah 53, it's called the, the Suffering Servant Passage. It is an Old Testament illustration of who the Messiah is. We know Messiah is Jesus, the person who provides salvation, the person who renews our lives, who teaches us a different way. And so with this passage, we're going to get three tips on how to plagiarize Jesus. We'll keep it very simple. And I invite you to, if you want to write this down, sometimes I joke and say, note takers are world changers. So if you want to take some notes, write it down. Whether you agree with me or disagree with me, think about it. One of the things in this church we stress, open the Bible, read it, figure out what it says, then understand it. Apply it to your life. And if you disagree maybe with what one of the pastors says, great, good, then we want to talk about, think it through, because we really want to take the book of Jesus' life and apply it to our lives Let's think critically about it. Let's think, how does this intersect how he lived, how I live today? So here's, here's my first tip. Be vulnerable. Be vulnerable. Okay. So in the beginning of this part of the passage today, here's what we read. 
My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Jesus was vulnerable. Think about it for a second. My servant grew up. Growing up implies vulnerability. Whether you, anybody have a teenager in your house? Teenagers are so fun. I don't have a teenager yet. I got a little squishy baby. I got a little squishy baby. His name is Henry. He's about to turn one on Friday. Happy birthday to Henry five days in advance. But babies are vulnerable. Children are vulnerable. The fact that Jesus came to earth as a baby is vulnerability. Think about it. Babies are hungry and they cry. Babies need to be changed and they cry. By the way, I was thinking about this. What did they have in first century? Did they have diapers? I don't know. That sounds scary. It's a lot to unpack. Different sermon. But the reality is, is fortunately, my son Henry does have diapers. So when the diaper needs to be changed, he gets it changed. I don't know in the days of Jesus. Um, that's a different story. There's vulnerability there. Henry's not able to change his diaper himself, Right? We often think of the vulnerability of Jesus that, yes, Jesus came and was born in a manger. Sure, that's putting him in a feeding trough for cows. That's vulnerable. Also, when Jesus was about two-ish years old, maybe a little before, maybe after, um, they had to flee to Egypt. We also know that as Jesus grew up, see, he grew up, he was vulnerable. He, wasn't, he didn't just, like, imagine there's Jesus in heaven, and he didn't just like come down slowly in slow motion with the final countdown playing and like smoke machines and lasers and like big manly like Conan the Barbarian uh, muscles. He didn't just like come down and now like defeat Rome and like save everybody physically on the world. No, he came as a vulnerable baby. He came as someone who had to grow. We read about in the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life, how he had to literally go to the temple and read the scriptures and learn and grow. And there was even a story as he was growing up, when he was 12-ish years old, where Jesus, his parents are just worried sick. Where is he? We've lost our child. I recently, my oldest is two and a half, and I, I took her to Michael's, and for like half of a second, I thought I lost her, and I had this moment of, I didn't. She was looking at paint. But I had this moment where I just, my stomach dropped, and I was like, oh, because she's vulnerable. Jesus was vulnerable. The parents were like, where is Jesus? So they run back to the city and there he is, learning and studying and growing. And that's what this scripture tells us. My servant grew up. Vulnerability. But vulnerability is one of those things that I think as Christians we get wrong. We often have this idea that we have to have this brave false front on the end. And, and on the, we have to have these appearances. It's like, it's like that song from Encanto, right? Uh, surface pressure, where Louisa feels like she just has to hold all the donkeys and all the houses, but on the inside, she's feeling like there's cracks under the surfaces. We can live our spiritual lives feeling like we have surface pressure, like we have the insides and the outsides don't match up. Now, if you're involved in our Lent study, which this is one part of it, this week we're going to look at the idea that appearances can be deceiving and looking at underdogs and looking how sometimes those people that the insides and outsides don't match up, but they're godly people trying to do the right thing. What can we learn from them? But vulnerability is something we get wrong, except there's a group that does it really well. Our Christian friends who are involved in 12-step communities, 
Start with experience. When someone wants to, to get sober or to work on their issues, work on their challenges, they have to start with honesty. They have to sit down and say, I messed up. I'm working on this. This is a problem. I need to be honest about it. Vulnerability and starting with that experience and then working together and keeping it one day at a time, understanding, okay, I can't. But the reality is, is that if our 12-step friends get it right, why can't we be a little more vulnerable? Why can't we be willing to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers. I don't live the perfect life. I do have moments where I have, as Luisa would say from Encanto, surface pressure. I do have the moments where I just feel overwhelmed and it's too much and be honest about it because if Jesus grew up like a tender green shoot, we're not expected to be these mighty oaks right now. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be honest. And so I think of a, a, a time that I really experienced this. I was in high school and I had this chorus teacher that I absolutely loved. And he was great. From a teaching standpoint or a music standpoint, he was really fun because he was one of those teachers where he'd let kids kind of hang out before and after school. He'd have snacks. He'd have donuts. Uh, we would do music trivia. So he also, I'm in my 30s, so I was a teenager in the early to mid-2000s. He also only liked old music. 60s, 70s, and 80s. Anything from the 90s or before, he called that modern music. Uh, he liked the Beastie Boys, but other than that, absolutely not good. Uh, randomly, he was a huge Beastie Boys fan, the biggest that I've ever met, and that's another story for another day. But I learned all these different bands like Strawberry Alarm Clock and the 13th Floor Elevators and Fairport Convention, all these different groups you may have never heard of from the 60s because of him. But that's not what had the big impact on me. In the fall of my 10th grade year, he took a leave of absence. And that wasn't normal. It wasn't a maternity leave. I, I had had teachers take a maternity leave before. He took a leave of absence for a major mental health issue that he had. And then he came back later in the year and was honest about it. And he said, I struggle. It was a Christian school. And he said, you know what? I have faith in Jesus, but I still, my life is not perfect. I have faith in Jesus, and I still have mental health issues that I have to get taken care of. I see a psychiatrist. I see a counselor. I work with supports. And it's okay to be honest about stuff. And he came back for the end of the year. And I will tell you, it was not him teaching me how to sing tenor one, tenor two, baritone, and bass that had the biggest impact on me. It was not his cool music. It was the fact that he was just honest that life is a struggle and we could be vulnerable about it. We grow together. We have faith in the stories of our lives. If we have faith, that doesn't mean our book is now perfect. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, our theologian we look at, says we, we certainly try to go on towards perfection with the Holy Spirit guiding us and sanctifying us, but the reality is, is that we are not perfect. We have to be vulnerable. And so I invite you to think about this. If you're going to plagiarize Jesus here, vulnerability is strength. The Apostle Paul said it this way, with Christ, when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, so there's our first tip. But the passage keeps going, and let's look at another one. We want to live for an audience of one. Now, when you're writing a book, if I have any authors in the room, do I have any authors in the room? Anybody like writing? Anybody? No, I see some hands. Thank you. I appreciate that. See you. At the beginning of the pandemic, everybody wanted to reinvent themselves. 
So I decided I really loved writing. So um, I've done some writing over the last couple of years. Really enjoy it. If you're an author, great job. You know if you're an author, and wait, we all are because our lives are books. If you are an author, you have to figure out who your audience is. You have to figure out why you're writing and to whom. Now, when I'm teaching writing to my students at school, we think first of our purpose. So am I writing to entertain? Am I writing to persuade? Am I writing to inform? But then I also have to think, who am I writing to? Because if I'm writing a teen, vampire, undead romance comedy novel, that is a very specific audience. Very specific. Now, you may all look and say, well, that specific audience is me. Maybe it is, but still it's a specific audience. We have to figure out who you're writing, what audience that is to, and then work to write for that audience. In our lives, we misunderstand who our audience is. God is our audience. Everyone else is not. Look at what it says in the scripture here. He was despised and rejected. He was not popular and affirmed. Jesus was not a celebrity superstar that no one ever had anything bad to say. He did not have a 100% score, audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Jesus was despised and rejected. Jesus was not intentionally a jerk to people, though. We have to be careful. Because just because I say I have an audience of one, that doesn't mean that now I can be a jerk to all of you here. No, that's not what having an audience of one means. It means understanding that the person's approval I need is God's. And God asked me to love him, love God, and to love people. And so as I'm thinking of that, I have to think, okay, he was despised and rejected. If we try to please people, that's not a fun cycle. That's a vicious hamster in the wheel cycle. We never, do we ever successfully please everyone? In our workplace, can we get all of our coworkers and our crusty boss and our crusty boss's boss and, or maybe our wonderful boss, can we get them all to like us at every single time? Do every project we do, is everyone going to have universal glowing remarks? Every new business venture we do, are people just going to love it? No. That's not the point. We want to live for an audience of one, understanding Jesus was despised and rejected, but he was faithful to God. He was despised and rejected by people. But why was he despised and rejected? Let's think for a moment of two groups that despised and rejected him specifically. There's a group called the Pharisees. Now, in the story of Jesus' life, Jesus' life is a book. In the Gospel of Matthew, one of the main, from a literary standpoint, here we go, literary, ready? One of the main antagonists of the book of Matthew is the group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees we often think of as just hypocrites and people who came in with all the rules and they were just trying to tell everyone, I'm right and you're wrong. That's, that's ish true. In my seminary courses, what I've realized, though, and what I've learned is the Pharisees actually were attempting to be men of the people. They were trying to not just stay hidden away from everyone. They were trying to come down and talk to people about the law and talk to people about living the right way. But the problem is, is they got so rigid and legalistic that they just became totally rigid and legalistic. And so Jesus wasn't looking for their approval. If you're going to have legalism in, in our lives, if I'm living for God, if there's people who are just really legalistic and rigid, I'm probably not going to make them happy all the time, and that's okay. Okay, there's another group. It's a group called the Sadducees. Now, 
Before I was in seminary, I always thought the Sadducees, those were the people that were trying to compromise and really get to know the people. No, they were just a bunch of out-of-touch people that were kind of elitist, and they basically just scoffed at everybody. Jesus didn't try to please them either. If, if we go through our lives and there's people who are just out-of-touch elitist, and, and I'm sitting and trying to make a difference in my classroom, and I'm just trying to sit and get to know kids, and there's someone just out of touch, there's times where I just got to ignore that. If, I, if I'm in my family and my extended family, and I'm sitting there at the Thanksgiving dinner table, and I'm trying to just be kind and be present and have a nice experience, and there's someone who's just out of touch, I don't need to argue with them. I don't need to tell them that they're right or wrong or indifferent. I need to live for an audience of one, and I need to say, okay, yeah, we might disagree, but my point is not to convince you of anything. My point is to live plagiarizing Jesus. In the story of my life, I don't need chapter 7 to be all about how I told everyone who was wrong that they were wrong, and I convinced them. No, chapter 7 should be he continued to live faithfully. Chapter 7 should be I lived for an audience of one. And so that really makes me think of, okay, so who are some people who did that? Because it's so easy to look around, right, our, our series is called When Life Makes No Sense. It's so easy to look only at the times life makes no sense. It's so easy to look at only the times that people get it wrong. Let's talk about two people who got it right. Charles Schultz is the creator of Snoopy. Wonderful. And I'm wearing, look at this, I'm wearing Snoopy socks. So I love Snoopy, and I love, that's awesome. I got to check out that museum. I love Snoopy, and I love um, Charlie Brown, and I love Linus, and I love Lucy. But here's the thing. Charles Schultz created all of these. But Charles Schultz was also a really faithful follower of Jesus. And so he was approached by Coca-Cola to make a special for them. And he said, I'd love to, to make it for you. They're like, we want you to use Snoopy. I'd love to use Snoopy. Well, we wanted to include Charlie Brown. Yeah, I'd love to. Good, okay, so you're all set. Oh, by the way, it's going to include, it's a Christmas special, so it's going to include the Christmas story. Well, we don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to use the story of the birth of Jesus. And Charles Schultz was willing to walk away. Now, of course, because he had an audience of one, he didn't worry about if they picked up his special or not. If they did, great. And if they didn't, great. He still was going to make cartoons and do, do what he loved. But the reality is, is because he just didn't worry about that, in that situation, it worked out for him. And the Charlie Brown Christmas has become arguably the most beloved of the Christmas specials, and it includes the story of the birth of Jesus directly in it. They read out of Luke's gospel. Sometimes we can live for an audience of one. Another person, patron saint arguably of my family, Fred Rogers. I love this guy. He is the man, uh, so much so that there's all these fun, like, contemporary shows. I mean, I like Bluey. Don't get me wrong. I'm a toddler parent, so I know Bluey and Coco Melon and et cetera. But here's the challenge. This is the greatest TV show for children of all time. This is also the greatest children's... Uh, Chris, uh, this is also the greatest... Christian children's TV show of all time. Let me tell you why. You could say that's confusing. He doesn't talk about Jesus. He doesn't pray in it. Let's unpack the concept for a second. Fred Rogers has a show in a neighborhood where he's talking about it's a beautiful day in this neighborhood about neighbors. Jesus was asked in the book of his life, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, but also 
love your neighbor as yourself. This entire show is about loving your neighbor as yourself, and he really tries to do it. Is he perfect? No, he's a flawed guy. In his special, whenever he got really upset, um, it talks about in, one, in the documentary special, if you saw this a couple years ago, he used to go into his house and play his piano really loud. So he wasn't a perfect guy. He had anger. He had all sorts of things. But that wasn't the point. He had an audience of one, and he understood that whether they pick up my show or not, he initially had a show in Canada that sort of worked, and it got canceled. And he said, I'm just going to keep being faithful, following Jesus. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister. Every single year, he went before a recertification board to talk about how his ministry to children on his TV show how that fulfilled his requirements as a pastor. He lived with an audience of one. One of the reasons we remember him is because he was just willing to say, you know what? It's you I like. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood. He didn't make it about everything else. He made it about just listening to kids and being open to saying, you know what? Maybe the gunfire of all the other children's TV shows is more appealing. But he has this famous thing in, in his appeal before the Senate to, to get some more funding for public broadcasting. He says, you know, I'm really concerned with all the bombardment that happens in children's programming. What I want to talk about more is the drama of when a new baby comes into your house. And now you're the older sibling, and you're used to having all the attention. And you're used to having all, everybody bring you gifts, and now there's a new baby, and you're out of the spotlight. What's that like? How do I continue to not have temper tantrums, not to, not to have a really hard time, but maybe appropriately knock over some blocks and, and learn how to appropriately use my anger? Biblical themes, my point is, is that he brought this all into his show because he knew who his audience was. He had an audience for one. And so my question is, if we're going to plagiarize Jesus, let's remember, can we have an audience of one? In our families, can we stop trying to please everybody? In our workplace, can we stop thinking that everybody else, again, I don't be a jerk to them. This is not saying, now just go be a jerk and it's okay because God's got me. No, it's not that. I love my neighbor, but can I stop worrying about what everyone thinks about me at work, at the grocery store, at the community center I volunteer at. And then here's our final one. Here's our final tip. Embrace life when it's hard. And this is our, as we think of our sermon series, when life makes no sense, there are times when life is hard. Can we agree? Life is not all. Does anyone have, I used this recently, but I'm going to use it again. Is anyone's life perfect like a Disney movie? Here's the problem. Even a Disney movie, the characters are not perfect because if we're going from writing stories, right, you have to have inciting incidents. You have to have conflict. Otherwise, it's a totally uninteresting story. Our stories have difficulties. We have to embrace when life is hard. Look at what it says in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief, we turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Jesus embraced his life. He embraced his mission. And even when people turned away from him, we know that ultimately his most important work is his death on the cross. 
But we know that ultimately, even in the most difficult moments, he embraced his life. But that didn't make it any easier. He didn't run away. After he was betrayed, he didn't figure out how to get out of there. He didn't book it out. When he came in on Palm Sunday, and it was clear that this was starting to be the end, and he talked about his death in advance, he didn't then book it on a one-way ticket to anywhere but here. He stayed. He embraced his life when it was hard. He sat through the moment where he was betrayed by a dear friend. He sat through the moment where he was, knew that he was denied by a dear friend. He sat through the garden and he asked, hey, friends, just stay awake with me for an hour. And they wouldn't. He had that moment. But here is the thing. No matter the difficult thing he faced, he kept going, he embraced it. When he suffered in the garden, when he was arrested falsely, wrongly, when he was whipped and beaten falsely and wrongly, when he was mocked, when they put a crown of thorn on his heads, when they nailed him to a cross, when they put an obnoxious sign ridiculing him, he, even up to that point, he practiced forgiveness. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He embraced when life was hard. In the story of his life, that is what we can emulate. That's what we can say, wow, even at the most difficult moments, even when I feel like a man of sorrows, even when I'm despised, I can continue being vulnerable, not, not trying to please everyone, remembering I have an audience of one, and continue just walking faithfully. Now, this is true in our workplace. We encounter difficult times at work. I've talked to a number of people in this room and people in our other services and people generally in our community. One of the big themes I hear these days is my job is so difficult because I show up on time faithfully every day and we're so understaffed right now. And I'm doing three jobs. I'm covering duties that I should never have to cover and it's so frustrating. It's hard. Another thing I hear is, we're at a time where we should all just be gathering together and we should be banding together and everyone is eating each other and they're just all, well, there's these contentious meetings and they're all being frustrated and I just don't know what to do. We should just be working together and we're not. Life is hard at work. In our families, we have the same thing. We have real conflicts. I have a number of dear friends who are going through right now divorces in different parts of my life that I know that are going through real conflict. I know people, and we all know people, and maybe we ourselves are going through something really difficult. So the question then becomes, when I'm feeling like the man of sorrows, when I feel despised, when I am despised, what do I do? Do I hightail it and run? Do I get out of Dodge? Or do I say, you know what? God, you've put me here. And this is something that we really looked at in our Lenten study, the idea of those obstacles. When we have obstacles, those are opportunities to be faithful and serve God. That's what we looked at in our Lenten study this past week, that I can embrace life when it's hard. And we think of a number of people whose stories are over, wonderful Christian examples. Each of us, it's interesting, I, I know that each of us have men and women in faith that we really look up to from different generations. One generation that has really looked at people and said, wow, what can I learn from them? is a generation that has followed and loved Dietrich Bonhoeffer. We'll put his picture up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany during World War II. He was in complete obscurity. He was just an ordinary guy trying to do the right thing. He was 
really brilliant, and he was given an opportunity to go safely to America and to teach in a cushy job. And he said, you know what? I can't do that. If I'm going to be part of the solution after the war, I have to be with the people during the war, and I have to be here to follow Jesus and to serve my community right now. And eventually he was, in obscurity, put to death, and in obscurity, his life ended. Now, we know him because later writings were discovered, and he's become one of the greatest thinkers of Christian thought in the 20th century. But the reality is, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life was not about fame. It was just about living an ordinary, faithful life during extraordinary, difficult circumstances. For other generations, Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador. He went down and he wanted to just bring the light of Jesus to a community that was just plagued with tribal violence and difficulties. And he tried to get to know them. He just tried to be kind and positive. And eventually he was put to death, killed by the very people he came to serve. However, his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, stayed. She did not run away. She stayed, and she was part of God's solution for that people, and they are now a nonviolent tribe. And she was part of reconciliation. Even in a very difficult thing, her husband was, was killed by the very people that they came to serve. He was put to death. She stayed to be part of God's plan because the reality is we have to embrace life when it's hard. And that brings me to what's going on right now. So those are historical examples. Those men and women of faith are no longer alive. Their stories are over. Here is someone right now in obscurity doing the right thing today at this hour. We are connected through the United Methodist Church with a pastor named Oleg. Oleg is a pastor in Kiev, in Ukraine. And he was given at the very beginning of this war, he was given an opportunity to leave. A number of people. He has people who just care about him, connected to us through the United Methodist Church. And he was given all these opportunities to go to India, to come to the U.S., to go to Romania. And he lists all these countries that people offer, and he said, thank you so much, I really appreciate that. But we are staying in Ukraine in order to serve people while it is necessary. And then he goes on to talk about how he believes that Ukraine will win. And here's what I like so much. Look at this. When war ends, we meet you and drink tea together or coffee. That there's hope. That even in the difficult time he's thinking after the war, there's rebuilding. But by staying, then I will feel not like a fraud when war is over, but knowing that I have served Jesus and I've lived, I have an audience of one, and that even when life is difficult, I can faithfully walk forward at great personal risk. So I and my family have been praying for him and his family by name every night. We often say we pray for Ukraine. Do we pray for specific Christian leaders in Ukraine seeking to bring not anything to do with war? He's not fighting a battle militarily here. He's simply setting up shelters. He's turned a whole, he, he has a whole network of churches that he oversees. And as a pastor, he's gone around to these different churches and these other pastors, and he's helped them turn these churches into shelters and taken in hundreds and thousands now of refugees. He's not trying to get the credit. He's not famous. He's not on the front page of the New York Times. 
you've heard about him because I randomly friended him on Facebook and he friended me back and I get to see his stuff. His stuff isn't even that public on Facebook. Because that's not the point. It's not about writing a book that's going to be a bestseller. It's about writing a book like Jesus, plagiarizing Jesus and saying, you know what? I don't need to be a bestseller. It needs to be a great book. The great book is like Jesus. It doesn't need to be original. I don't need to just do something totally different. I can imitate Jesus. Remember, Paul said, the Apostle Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. I can plagiarize Jesus. I can imitate Jesus with the book I'm writing. And so that makes me think of being a teacher. So I I told you that it's my job as a, a teacher to help you not plagiarize. And one of the things I do when I was growing up, it was easy to plagiarize an English paper. Do I have anyone here who wants to confess before God and your community that you plagiarized in high school? You won't get in trouble, I promise. Okay? It was really easy. Was it not pretty easy, Billy? Yes, it was. Billy and I were the same age. Okay, he, he agrees. Okay. Um, so here's the reality, is that while it was really easy then, it's now not, because I have a superpower as an English teacher. I have a website that I can take your English paper that's so original and so interesting, and I can just input your text in there, and in about 30 seconds, it's going to give me a match report. It's going to tell me how much plagiarism is in your paper. Now, no one will get zero, because even if you have a quote, it'll show me where your quotes are, and then I can look back and I can say, okay, you cited here, you got to work on your bookmarks, hey, you're doing APA, I need MLA, all these kind of things. And I can know exactly how much non-original content is in your essay. Well, if our lives are books, right? So everybody think for a moment, my life is a book. Maybe I'm on chapter 7, maybe I'm on chapter 12, it doesn't matter. My life is a book. Do I like the book I'm writing? That's one question. Here's the next question. If I took my book and I put it through Mr. Cushing's website that allows me to see how much plagiarism is there, would it come back as having the work of Jesus in it? Another, another way that it's been put in the past is, is that if I was accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict me? That's another way to say it. So I invite you to, today, as, as we think, we're not here to write bestsellers. We're not here to be famous. We're here to be faithful and to say, you know what? I don't need to have all the answers when life makes no sense. I don't need to be the greatest, biggest influencer on Instagram. I don't need to have the most perfect-looking life on the outside. I need to walk faithfully and walk humbly. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you to give us the courage at the times where we do everything but plagiarize Jesus in our lives, where the times where we go great and glorious and grand and live all different ways and get confused and start not being vulnerable, at the times where we say, you know what, I am going to please everyone, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, Lord, forgive us at those times. Allow us to see that when life is difficult, we can embrace those moments and see them as a chance to serve you. That I don't need to, I don't need to be someone who's just seen as, wow, he's so great, but I can know that if you look at me and you see that I'm humble, that I ask for forgiveness, that I want to walk forward, that I want to be part of your solution in our world, that I have an audience of one, that that's all you're asking me to do. And so God, at those times that we are feeling like we have to do something else or do more, Lord, 
Allow us to see that we simply have to imitate Jesus. And in the stories of our lives, give us that peace. We know that your peace transcends and passes all understanding as we struggle today. Give us that peace. And then courage to walk forward humbly. In your name we pray.